Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. My name is Annie Hanma, and I study international space cooperation, space treaties, and space debris at the University of Sydney's School of History and Philosophy of Science. Recently, you may have come across a curious story in the news about an Israeli spacecraft crash landing onto the moon and potentially releasing thousands of little critters called tardigrades onto the lunar surface. I caught up with Chris Johnson, space law advisor for the Secure World Foundation in Washington, D.C., over Skype to record this podcast, to ask such important questions as what is a tardigrade, to explore the ins and outs of international planetary protection laws, and to explain why we should care. Part two of our conversation, where we mull at length on whether it's possible to have an interpretation of international law that escapes myopic anthropocentrism, will be released soon. Now, right up front, I have to say that any opinions expressed by me on this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of any organisation with which I am associated. I also want to make clear that Chris and I are not going to be accusing any person or organisation of breaching any law. That's a matter for courts, not for podcasts. But we don't want to let that get in the way of having a broader conversation about the issues at play in this situation. Because even though it's highly unlikely that tardigrades will ever manage to colonise the moon, it's still a very interesting case. I'm also going to take an extra minute to run through Chris's credentials, because I think it's important to emphasise that space is not an ungoverned Wild West, that space law does exist as its own distinct field, and that there are people who are truly experts in this field, of whom Chris is one. So, in addition to his current role at the Secure World Foundation, Chris has published on international space law, national space legislation, international cooperation in space, human-robotic cooperative space exploration, and the societal benefits of space technology for Africa. He has worked with the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs in Vienna, the Office of International and Interagency Relations at NASA headquarters in DC, and for the European Space Agency in Paris. Chris also co-founded the Space Law and Policy Project Group of the Space Generation Advisory Council. Chris serves as an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University, adjunct faculty at the International Space University, the legal advisor for the Moon Village Association, and a core expert and rule drafter in the Manual on International Law Applicable to Military Activities in Outer Space, which you might know as the Milamos Project. In other exciting news, you might have noticed I have a new podcast logo. The new logo is based on a photograph taken by the very talented Eamon Oxford. It replaces the black and white one I made in about 30 seconds in Microsoft Paint while in between flights last year. I thought the old logo was sort of trendy in its crude and unflinching minimalism, but I think we can all agree the new one is much better. I'd also like to send out a thank you to Nobsy from Canberra and Thomas from Melbourne for your feedback and support. Chris has requested that we begin the podcast with Popcorn by Hot Butter, which, and I quote, is to evoke a hauntology and a lost futures vibe. Chris, I think you've nailed it. 
And now onto the podcast. It says avoid legal snags by telling people they're being recorded. So you're being recorded. <laughs> All right. So welcome to Space Junk, uh, Chris Johnson, who's here from the Secure World Foundation, joining me via Skype from Washington, D.C. How are you? I'm doing all right. It is, um, yeah, Thursday evening. Uh, you know, right at the outset, I got to ask you, why is your podcast called Space Junk? I mean, it's saying like, you know, you should say, think a little bit more highly of yourself than when you're creating <laughs> a podcast that's about junk. Or is it just about junk? You're just going to talk about space debris. No, no, it's not just about debris. Um, well, the reason I called it Space Junk was that it was essentially <laughs> my opportunity to make a podcast where I got to talk to whoever I wanted about whatever I wanted uh, without particular regard to whether or not it was important or lofty. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I went with the, the Space Junk. It's a kind <laughs> of a, a catch-all, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on, you know, whether I think that you or I operate in a way that is <laughs> trashy. Um, yeah, it's just good good chats with people who know stuff about interesting things that don't normally get a run or might not normally be front of mind for everyone. Okay. So would you, um, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit, telling us what do you do, uh, why do you do it potentially? Okay. Um, so, uh, I am the space law advisor at the secure world foundation. We're a privately, uh, privately endowed operating foundation, an NGO non-governmental organization that is focused on the space domain and peaceful uses of outer space and fostering space sustainability, which is engaging with all actors in the space domain, you know, military, civilian, commercial, scientific communities to ensure that what they do um, is done in a sustainable uh, and useful uh, and equitable fashion. <laughs> um, so I think that you are probably one of the world experts in the legal situation of these tardigrades. Could you tell our listeners more about why you're interested in it? Well, I'm interested in it because I think um, it is a, a symptom of the future where actors in space are uh, more autonomous and more um, or less observed, less subject to oversight and checking. So for the first 50 years of space flight, it was governments which could get to celestial bodies. And now it will be private individuals and small companies and startups that can do you know, swarms of satellites around the moon and rovers on the moon and rovers on other celestial bodies, something that, uh, you know, we associate traditionally with, well, that takes a whole nation to do that. Not, I think not anymore. So I'll just introduce the story quickly for anyone who hasn't sure. been following it as closely as I and a few others have. In April this year, an Israeli spacecraft crash landed onto the moon. and it was revealed more recently that on board of this spacecraft was a, they called a lunar library. 
a particular foundation put together a library of what they what they say was a, a sort of a backup of planet Earth. So in this library was 30 million pages of information, including some classic books and most of English language Wikipedia, which I thought was very valuable considering that much of my research for this podcast was conducted on Wikipedia. So uh, if the tardigrades who were also on board were able to revive and access the records, they could read about themselves in the same way I just read about them. So, and as I alluded to, also in this library, this little box, was some human DNA samples, so blood and hair from 25 people, and tardigrades, um, a couple of thousands of dehydrated tardigrades. And all of this was encased in epoxy resin between layers of nickel. Do you want to comment first, and then I'll go into what tardigrades actually are in more detail, on this idea of creating a backup of planet Earth or putting human DNA and records on other celestial bodies? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like quite a nice idea, but it was done, what we would say, unilaterally. So one individual or one very small group of people said, we need to back up humankind, and they did it. So what mandate did this small group of people have to back up all of humankind? Why did they take it upon themselves and feel that they had the agency to do such a thing as opposed to, say, the United Nations or UNESCO or, you know, uh, it, it's that's what's kind of shocking about it. Like, who asked you to back up humankind and what exactly did you back it up with? I think that that's that's an interesting conversation to have because it usually that's something that most people would not ask. Most mm. people would say, oh, that sounds like a nice idea. That's kind of uh, kind of a philosophical or sentimental step to to have a backup of humankind as opposed to what exactly do you think you're doing why do you think you're why do you think you can do this this would be akin to i think there was you know there's discussions about this when they when seti was established and trying to contact alien civilization people said who told you you can go and do that i think something that science generally has done quite well um at least in recent years is have systems in place that require lots of people to make decisions about things that will be done on the basis of like some sort of scientific merit. But in contrast to that kind of communal idea of like many people's opinions and this overarching sort of scientific merit concept, when you've got the private sector becoming so much more active in space, I'm, it's probably not surprising that we're seeing more unilateral actions like this yeah. where uh, because the private sector in many ways does reward a more individualistic spirit. And I don't want to necessarily say that science is one thing and the private sector is something else because even my own academic field would disown me. But I, I do think that there is a different ethos and uh, a different way of measuring what's acceptable when you start taking um, – you know, these, these CEOs of big companies and then and then them having the ability to do these things that affect all of us. It's a, it's a different kettle of fish to have to wrestle with. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if something like a backup of humanity was done, say, by the United Nations, by the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, and it was managed by the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs, it would be truly international 
there would be a lot of discussion about it and a lot of um, politicking and difficulties in having it done. But it would be done collectively. It would be done in some sense for the good of everyone. And as a right. state, and as a statement of we can do this. Uh, look what we've accomplished. It's valuable because it, uh, in and of itself, and it's also valuable as a as a as a statement that that you, that the countries of the world can cooperate. So it is done for a variety of um, you know international collaborative cooperative reasons. Whereas uh, backing up humanity by a private individual or by a corporation is not done um, for collective interests but merely to say well we backed up humanity aren't we excellent it's done for individual interests so that this foundation or this private company can say we were the first to do this we put a backup of humanity on another celestial body as a way of kind of showing off of what they have done and can do yeah multilateral processes are slow but they're slow for a reason because i think the the journey is most of most of the value, actually, like uh, the, yeah. the piece of paper yeah, at the yeah. end is, is something, but the journey to get there is what drives the cooperation. I've done a bit of like factual research about tardigrades. Okay. Tardigrades are small critters from Earth. My research tells me that the word means slow steppers, and they're also known as water bears or moss oh. piglets. And I, for one, would like to know why the coverage of the tardigrades incident has not referred to the moss piglets on the moon because I think that's far more compelling as a headline. But basically, they're these little water-dwelling, eight-legged, segmented micro-animals. Um, and micro-animals, they're around, uh, the largest they get is about 1.5 millimetres. So um, that is visible. Oh. That, that's a very big tardigrade, a large species. But the smallest are kind of smaller than 0.1 millimetres. They're incredibly diverse creatures, very resilient. They've been known to, well, they've been found in the deep sea, in volcanoes, and in the Antarctic, frozen under layers of ice, um, and still alive. They are also one of the only creatures to have survived the vacuum of space. So in 2007, the European Space Agency sent a bunch of tardigrades with a satellite mission to be exposed to space. Um, they sent them dehydrated, and then when they returned to Earth, they rehydrated them. Um, and not only were they still alive, but they also then produced viable offspring. So it turned out that they, oh. like, not only were they alive, but they were thriving in the vacuum of space, which is just insane. So I think previously the only other things that have been known to survive space are um, lichens and bacteria. So these are the first sort of little creatures so they can go without food or water for 30 years or more and they can be dehydrated and still be alive for five years or more like no one actually really knows and my favorite fact was that when they're dehydrated you refer to them as desiccated uh like the coconut so there you go desiccated tardigrades were sent to the moon earlier this year and Considering how hardy they are, there's every chance that they survived the experience of crash landing into it. Whether or not they'll manage to rehydrate and so on is another matter. But in a dormant state, they could remain dormant for a long, long time. 
we don't know, right? And this is part of the issue. So that's kind of your factual, uh, I read Wikipedia summary of the tardigrade situation. But take us through the legal facts. We had, according to the facts, as they have been revealed um, in various news media, these tardigrades were not revealed to the launch, the various launch partners. Um, they were not revealed to the operator of the bear sheet mission. Uh, which is Space IL, a not-for-profit organization in Israel. Um, and they were not revealed to the um, Israeli uh, partners. They were not revealed to uh, SpaceX or the FAA or to NASA. And uh, they were not revealed until they uh, essentially crashed into the moon. And I think because of the rules that we have for planetary pe- protection of the moon, the moon is not particularly interesting as a as a locale for astrobiology. It is not a place where we would be looking to find non-terrestrial life forms. It is seen as a dead location, and therefore, um, the Committee on Space Research (COSPAR) classifies the moon as a Category Two location, meaning that it is not particularly of interest for astro astrobiology, and therefore, the protections necessary for the moon are lesser than other locations. They are lesser than they would be on Mars or Enceladus or Titan or Europa. Um, nevertheless, it is a Category 2, and documentation of the planetary protection measures taken by the mission have to be documented and reported to the other launch partners during the mission, uh, at the end of the mission. And, and, and some um, measures should be taken. It is a, of higher uh, planetary protection requirements if the mission was a return-to-Earth mission. This is merely a rover that goes to the moon and nothing is thought to be coming back. But if something was to be coming back to the Earth, then it would be uh, a higher category for the Coast Bar rules. It is often pointed out that these Coast Bar planetary protection rules are non-binding. They are, this is true that they are non-binding on the international level. However, space agencies impose them upon themselves and upon their launch partners uh, through regulations. Uh, NASA adheres to the planetary protection rules and asks that its launch partners also adhere to the planetary protection rules. And within the U.S., the FAA, uh, Federal Aviation Administration, which administers commercial space, also makes reference to these planetary protection rules for commercial missions. So the, the rules as they exist on the international level are non-binding, but they are still binding because they're implemented and incorporated contractually and through regulations. So it is not, you know, th- this is a less serious incident than if the tardigrades were sent to Mars or Europa. It is a less serious incident in terms of planetary protection, but it is of equal significance because of the story of how they got there. Because you have a private actor allegedly undertaking these activities without being transparent and open about them and choosing to interpret and apply the Coast Bar rules unilaterally by themselves, as opposed to the rules being implemented and observed and verified on the national level by the space agencies, by the actual experts. That's why this is a sign of things to come. Private actors. Determining for themselves what space law is and seeing that they don't violate international space law and then going ahead with their mission with little regard to 
who's supposed to be observing and implementing those rules, and in fact, who is bound by those rules. If this mission, if any space mission by a private individual does violate international space law, it is not the private individuals which will be responsible solely. It is the state which is responsible for the observance of international space law. This is Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty that says that states are internationally responsible for their national activities, whether those, are, those activities are done by governmental agencies or non-governmental agencies, i.e. private industry. And states also have an additional obligation to authorize, supervise, and assure continuing compliance with the Outer Space Treaty. So they have an obligation to make sure that their national activities comply with space law. And because of this, they have a huge burden of oversight and of regulation and investigating what private individuals do to make sure that they're not violating space law. And this is going to be the difficult thing as more private entities undertake bold missions and do things which were previously the capacity of eight of, of large space agencies. Yeah. Um, one of the things that really bothers me is the myth that space is ungoverned or that space is a wild west. Mm. Um, it's just not true. And it, it's fascinating to me how uh, people who work in the space sector buy into that myth that it's a wild west and really if I can make it work te technologically, then that's fine. Ignoring a history of very detailed and very thoughtful treaties and non-binding guidelines that have then been translated through national laws into binding guidelines that they need to follow, um, but also that the, the gaps between laws are not necessarily like the gaps between treaties and so on are not necessarily empty. There's also a lot of significance to the, to the words that have been chosen in the treaties. So like, it's not like reading tax legislation and then finding a loophole and that being fine because the tax legislation, you know, begins and ends where the legislation begins and ends. Ah, um, interesting. Space law is a little bit different, right? There's, there's, um, there's kind of more that's understood and implied and just because something's not explicitly stated in black and white doesn't necessarily mean that it that it isn't still law yeah exactly and i think that i mean so when it comes to say planetary protection and binding international space law we merely have some i would say pr general principles in article 9 of the outer space treaty that discusses that states in the exploration and use of outer space shall have due regard to the corresponding interests of other states and that they shall prevent harmful contamination. And so people will argue that this is not harmful contamination and that harmful contamination is what is prohibited, but harmful contamination is different from contamination. And putting life forms on another celestial body is not harmful uh, and it's not prohibited. It's merely contamination. So we just have kind of general principles that are meant to be um, it certainly they were at the time pretty much inclusive and and cover all circumstances. But as we get into new activities in space, whether it's space debris removal, manufacturing in space, satellite servicing, um, things on the surface of the moon, lunar activities, all done increasingly by private industry, we look for either a green light of permission in space law or we look for a red light of prohibition, and we find that the signals 
given to us by space law are indeterminate and uncertain. Um, either it is uh, uh, a gap, a lacuna in the law, and those gaps can be either intentional or unintentional, or we get instances of gray areas and indeterminacy and deficiency, what we call non-laquette. It is not clear. And I think that, um, you know, we have a, an intentional lacuna in some instances of space law where the drafter said, let's not address this particular activity. Let's not discuss um, placement of or, or let's not discuss transit of nuclear weapons through space. We could legislate about it, but let's leave that intentionally silent in the Outer Space Treaty. And that's an intentional silence. But when we get to, say, planetary protection or manufacturing in space or space to removal and you look for either a green light or a red light in the space law and you go, there's no light, there's no indication. Is it permissible to remove space debris? I don't know. It's We have to kind of guess from what is uh, the general freedoms, what are the prohibitions, and does this serve the general um, rationales behind space law? But if you're looking for a clear answer, you're not going to get a clear answer. And I think it's even you know, Article 2 on that prohibits national appropriation. Well, does that also prohibit the utilization of space resources? Uh, half the world says yes, half the world says no. We've had 50 years of debate about whether asteroid mining is legal or illegal. Every person, at least for the first couple decades, merely performed the activity of treaty interpretation and said, I have an answer, it's permitted. Or I have an answer, it's not per permitted. Those years of debate, to me, mean the answer is not clear. Article two mm -hmm. is not clear on whether we can use, whether we can mine asteroids. It simply is not an enumerated freedom, nor is it an explicit prohibition. And we have to throw up our hands at that point and say the space law as we have it is not certain for that activity and for many other activities. And therefore, we have to come up with new rules. Um, the U.S. and Luxembourg have determined that. If they look at Article 2 and they look at the freedoms of Article 1 of, of access and use and the fact that the treaty itself is the treaty on the principles governing the exploration and the use of celestial bodies, then therefore it accords with their freedom to use space, is to use the resources there. Um, and there's people who've, been, who've pushed back on that. I think that the debate on whether space resources are lawful um, has moved on from the black and white discussion of it's permitted or it's not permitted. Most of the world now thinks that it is permitted under space law to use and mine celestial resources. But the next discussion is to what extent, what are the guidelines, what are the guide rails of that activity? Does it have to benefit everyone? Can it benefit corporations? Will the first trillionaire that exists in world history be the trillionaire who made his money in space? Um, can you mine an asteroid to such an extent that the asteroid no longer exists as a, as a trackable celestial location? Uh, I don't know. But I think if, in the case of the, um, the tardigrades on the moon, a lot of the discussion that's come back, you know, in, in response to these sorts of arguments saying this should not have happened and this was not a good outcome have been, well, they're not, they're not alive. So it's not a problem or, they're not going to reproduce and colonize the moon, so it's not a problem. But 
I think the broader point which you touched on there and where I also think that the key issue lies is actually in the process by which the tardigrades got to the moon and the fact that, you know, it appears, um, and without making firm statements on it, it appears that there was international law that, or that there was national law or regulations or rules that were circumvented um, in such a way that I think it has, like, beyond polluting or contaminating the moon, polluted and contaminated our understanding of the laws that govern the moon and whether or not people are expected to adhere to them. Uh, the practice of individuals over the next, I, I even think probably year, maybe two years, will come to define how effective our law is over the next decades or maybe even longer because it's through the practice and performance of those principles and ways of operating by actors, if you like, that we come to understand what is and isn't acceptable. Yeah, I think I, you, you must be right in that. We're making a big fuss about these tardigrades because they're tiny. They don't violate the law anyway. No harm has been done. What's the big deal? They're just, you know, like there's a million other things we should be focusing on. And I think that my response to that is my response to what harm has been done um, or what's the matter is that, yeah, and this is a legal theory, is that, you know, the past matters. It, you don't ask, um, what good will it do to to punish these bad actors? Who will be deterred? What also matters equally is, you know, this is like uh, I had a professor who, who said this. The question is not what good will it do. The question is what harm has been done. Mm. The past matters. You ask what harm has been done. Uh, and, you know, people should be should answer for the past and for for things that they've done which have been wrong. So there may be um you know the excuse of like oh what does it matter you put a couple tardigrades on the moon. Uh it's the the act of how they got there that that actually is the the thing that we need to be concerned with. And that's why I've me and a couple other folks have kind of made a fuss about it because what's the next thing that will happen if we don't uh enforce the rules on this then what's the next bold stunt that someone will unilaterally take and that will matter, that will despoil something that is of collective and universal interest, and now some person has taken it taken upon themselves to, to ruin the discussion by making a bold, a bold move? Right, that's, uh, absolutely. The moon is, um, as you said, kind of a, a dead space, if you like, but if we... If this had happened on Europa or on Mars, um, not only would be would it be a, a breach of some sort of, or could it have been a breach of some sort of regulation or, or law, but it also would mean that if in future we found life forms on Mars, so you know through science or something, we couldn't definitively say whether or not they were there previously, and, and it makes it much harder for us to do. Um, to do things like science or to conduct yeah. future activities, even practically speaking, if we're not kind of uh, enforcing our rules around planetary protection. I, I think sometimes for people, when you can move it away from the conceptual, like we ought not to do this because it's a bad thing, to the practical, if we do this, 
we will damage our chances at X. Um, mm. Maybe it, maybe that's a more effective way of framing it. But, yeah. but I'm definitely and, with you on, on the legal points. And they, they'll respond by saying, oh, well, you know, we've already contaminated the moon because the Apollo astronauts left tons of stuff on the moon. They left, you know, human bacteria on the moon. So that, that ship has already sailed. And they'll say, um, how, you know, there's already rovers on Mars um, that probably have human bacteria. And, and, or not human bacteria, probably have life forms uh, from Earth. And therefore, the ship has sailed. The point is moot. I think this is the wrong argument. It's a failing argument because, well, that's a few instances and in a few locations on Mars and on the moon. That doesn't mean you have to take off all guideposts and all rules and you can do whatever you want because somebody else has already done it in the past. Um, mm. It's just not a good justification. But this gets back to the point I was talking about at the beginning of we will have competing interests. How much is Mars preserved purely for the science? How much of the moon is purely for science? Don't the other folks who will be investing time and money and their whole careers and wanting to do things on the moon for commercial purposes to establish lunar infrastructure, a cislunar economy, don't their interests also matter? Or is all those places just off limits until we get all the science done? I don't have a right answer for that, except I know that the answer is not purely science gets to do whatever they want. And that we cannot also use those locations for other purposes. Mm. But a conversation will need to be had. There are some places on the moon that it's better to preserve for science. There's other places where let let the economy take off. I would say it is not, I don't want to be um, yeah, prescriptivist or um, very explicit about it. I'll just say that a conversation needs to be had about the fact that we should have a different regime for different places on the moon and a different regime altogether from asteroids, which have different scientific value and then different regimes for Mars. And we're going to have to have the, each of those conversations each time. Yeah. We might finish there because I'm aware that it's very late where you are and you've probably got things to do. If you had any further you know, closing statements, if you like. Um, and then also uh, if people are interested in this, what should they go and Google or what should they go and read um, or do? Uh, okay. So um, I think that, you know, space law is a branch of international law. It is a special regime of international law. We need good practitioners who are skilled in legal theory, who are skilled in regulatory law, who are skilled in constitutional law, who are skilled in treaty interpretation who are skilled in all of uh, enforcement of international law uh, to practice international law and to practice space law. So I definitely think that, you know, anyone who's interested in practicing space law, take it as seriously as you want, learn as much as you possibly can about international law and about space law. And we need, we need these folks in this field to practice space law and to educate the rest of the space community about the importance and the, and, and the rules of space law. Well, thank you so much for making time and having a really interesting conversation with me across the world at different time zones. It's pretty awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Space Junk. If you'd like to read more about space law and moss piglets, Chris, along with previous guest on the podcast, Dan Porras, recently put out a two-part article on this very topic. 
check the episode description or my Twitter feed for the links. And as always, you can tweet me. My handle is now at Annie Hanmer, which is much easier. And you can also find me on Instagram. Chris has asked to end with Cherry's Dub by King Tubby from the album King Tubby's Lost Treasures. Enjoy. Thank you.